Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Hello, I'm Scott Soshnick. And I'm Evan Novi Williams, and this is the Commissioner to CEO Sports Business Podcast, The Sporting Guys. Commissioner to CEO, are we talking about Adam Silver being courted, wooed? I don't. I mean, I'm not sure if we got to the wooed, you know, part yet. <laughs> but you know, Bob Iger returns to Disney. Uh, I saw Bob speak recently at the uh, probably appropriate venue, NBA Tech Summit. Uh, I don't think Bob Iger is into holding this position for the next ten to fifteen years. Yep. Uh, so the Walt Disney Company will need to find a successor. And by the way, should we be surprised? I don't think that a lot of companies, sports leagues, whatever, do a really good job at succession. I have had a lot of people asking me about, gee, who would replace Gary Bettman? Been there forever, long as the commissioner. Yeah. Who would replace, you know, Roger? Who's the next commissioner of the NFL? People keep, you know, wondering about that. Why don't more places do it like the NBA, where David had a succession plan in place? Everybody knew that Adam Silver was going to replace David whenever the time came, and it was a seamless transition. Isn't that a better outcome for business instead of, oh, now we got to hire a search firm and we got to go look everywhere for somebody? Like, shouldn't this be done well in advance? Like, this should not be a surprise for leagues or companies. It, it, it's a it's certainly a better outcome for Adam Silver if you're waiting in the wings and you and you know it's going to be you. I would bet, and 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 we can debate the merits of this philosophy. I would bet bet that there are there are leaders out there who believe that the internal competition between your your highest ranking deputy executives to try to be the next guy is something that motivates and drives production in a way that they find valuable. And that the minute that you as the commissioner say, this guy's my guy, the, the, the four or five other people who really wanted to be the next guy might immediately look for other jobs, th- their production might change. I would bet that part of the reason why you don't, you don't get this immediate secession all the time is that people view the, the top job opportunity as a carrot for employees to keep striving and to stay right and and staying. And I, I have a feeling we're going to take this conversation in this direction, Scott sports leagues are, are not because of their structure and their compensation abilities. They're not great at retaining talent. Right. And, and, and in some ways I think that that a mystery about who's the next commissioner of the NHL might actually help the NHL retain people 
who might not stick around at the league if they knew for sure that the next 20 years of commissionership was going to go to someone that wasn't them. See, I would argue that you've got the wrong people in the other positions. I think, that's a, I think that's a fair argument. Thanks, sure. Sure. I, I like to be fair because there's certainly a benefit to whatever the, the runway is to that succession for that, that, that hand-picked successor to work with the commissioner to really get a feel for what the job is. You're, you're in different meetings. You're, you're the top decision maker. The, your, your job certainly changes as you're being prepared for that job. I could see David Stern saying, well, Adam, why don't we pretend you know something came up and why don't we pretend you're in the, you're in the desk? Why don't you go sit behind my desk and what's your decision and why? How do you proceed? I'm not sure that happens with three, four, five candidates. Like I'm assuming at Goldman Sachs, you got your head of investment banking, you've got your head, of, you got a bunch of people vying for the top job, you know? Um, yeah, maybe you're right. Like what what happened when when David Solomon was picked to run Goldman? Did the others leave? I'm I'm really not sure. Yeah, yeah I, I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, I, it, it wouldn't sure. shock me if there was a there was a departure. Yeah, I, it wouldn't shock me either. But I think it's more important to get the top job right. Yeah, and the best way to do that. I think is to, is for clarity to have a a transition period where everybody knows this is the new leader, where that person can sort of begin acting uh, both outwardly and inwardly as the new commissioner. This is a very specified job. It's it's not only, and I find this interesting on the NFL, and I've spoken to a lot of people. It's not just about do you have a mastery of media tech, you know, all the things we talk about that go into sort of what leagues are these days. A significant component of Roger Goodell's abilities to make that league run well are his relationships, long-time mm-hmm. relationships. You've got to be consensus building. I'm not sure it's easy for somebody to come from the outside and say, okay, uh, Mr. Bidwell, okay, Mr. Jones, uh, you know, this is what, uh, you don't know me, nice to meet you, I'm the new commissioner. I don't know. I think you need that time. That's an internal candidates need to be prepared. Um, I, I'm not sure you just bring somebody in from the outside that easily and say, step into our world and and discount how much years of relationship building and getting to know the mechanisms, the, the machinations, how that league works, how important that is to league league operations in the future. The reason we're having this conversation is oh yeah that reports uh, <laughs> that Adam Silver has uh, is is a candidate potentially uh, in of the running of interest from Disney to replace Bob Iger. Uh, you and I, Scott, wrote in a story uh, in the middle of last year that 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 there had been uh, prior outreach from a number of big tech companies uh, about Adam and his and his willingness to stay at the NBA versus explore high and very powerful positions at their companies. Um, and to flip it for a second, uh, I totally understand why someone like Adam, for a lot of the reasons you just said about the, just the variety of things that commissioner deals with from the specifics of the media industry, all the way through the social dynamics of having 32 people who are used to having their way in every aspect of their life, having 32 of them, with, sometimes with aligned agendas, sometimes not with aligned agendas and having to manage all that. Oh, and also having to be willing to, when things go wrong, to stand there at the podium and 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 eat all of the questions and take all of the blame, um, I can understand why if you're a, a massive publicly traded company, someone with that unique skill set, knowledge base, and skill set uh, is a really attractive and interesting opportunity for you. 
Uh, and we should get into the way that the, the compensation structure here, right? A company like uh, like Disney, uh, ESPN, Apple, Amazon, uh, they have almost unlimited money, uh, but they also have the ability to offer stock options. There's equity uh, and compensation options that the NBA does not get. Adam L-tips. Silver, L-tips. Yeah, exactly. Adam Silver could run the NBA for 50 years and there's no equity option for him. And I would bet, and I don't know what he gets paid. My guess is around 20 million a year. I, I, I don't know. Um, but uh, there would also be a, a relative ceiling on his compensation. And it would look very different uh, when you expand that out to a different industry that's not a sports league. Yeah, and we talked about leagues are trying to come up with like a supplemental fund, a, a way of keeping its quote of not only recruiting, but more importantly, retaining top talent. Yeah. Because not only, you know, somebody like Adam, who's in the top job right now, but those top lieutenants and deputies, they're obviously the NFL has lost a bunch of people to other places that can structure compensation like like you just, just mentioned. Mm-hmm. I would wonder, and this is a Mike Bloomberg thing. You know, you know, everyone always said, what is Mike going to sell Bloomberg? You know, everybody it was always those rumors, somebody, you know, whether I don't, you know, somebody Microsoft was going to buy Bloomberg or whatever. I know and having I've heard Mike talk about the difference between private and public companies mm-hmm. and how difficult it is to run a public company because quarter to quarter, all that matters, it's very difficult to take an action that as the leader you believe is in the best long-term interest of the company if for whatever reason it means earnings are down that particular quarter. And I think Michael Rubin might be finding that out sometime in the near future Mm. where he can do whatever he wants as Fanatic is a private company. But once you've got Wall Street on a quarter-to-quarter basis, you know how are you going to make your number? How are we beating the quarter? How are we beating estimates? That short term takes over for the long term. Or do you believe enough, you know, do the investors believe enough in the leader to say, hey, 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 you know, this is, we got to, you know, you're investing in this company knowing that this is the vision. This is the guy, this is the woman that brought us here. And, and we have to trust that long term strategic division, uh, vision, rather, but definitely more difficult in a publicly traded setting. And, and to give a, an example to that idea, the, the amount of money that, NBA and, and NBA owners dedicated towards op- international opportunities, particularly in China, from from the middle of the 1980s all the way through the 2000s. There were a lot of NBA owners that really felt like they were throwing you know good money after bad. That it was a, a waste of resources. That they might not even be alive to see the return on that investment. I think you're right. I think as a publicly traded company, the NBA spending all these resources in Asia back in the 90s is the kind of thing that I think, you know, it doesn't immediately show up on the in the stock price that that day, that month, that quarter, that year. And as a result, I agree, you're probably hard, slightly harder to do. And um, can I make a, a, I think, educated guess here, if I may? I, and I'm not sure if we, this is a Sashnik value head trumpet or not, but <laughs> educated guess, this is what I see, that the owners today of sports leagues are more than cognizant that these teams and leagues as a whole are operated like tech companies. They are me- they are media content companies. Mm-hmm. That's what they are. They're you know it's not about really these games anymore. <laughs> it's about how how can you create more content? How do you distribute better? How do you get people more people to consume in different ways? These are tech media content companies. However, sports leagues do not think of investment like a tech media company would. The yeah. one is inherent in what they do. 
R&D and tech. It's a huge line item in the budget. We've got to come with a better way. We've got to figure out the new, the next, whether it's Tesla or Apple. I, I think if you look at the line items here, R&D is a huge part of the budget. Yep. That, that ain't the case at the NBA, the NFL. It just isn't. Even though these businesses are more and more aligning with what the Teslas and the Apples of the world do. Mm. So you are going to need a leader that, one, understands it, two, is able to persuade, like you just talked about owners who didn't want to invest in China, who did. Yeah. I'm not sure what percentage of owners in these leagues are looking to make that sort of commitment. Exactly. And an outlay in something that is beyond the core of, wait a minute, how do I sell tickets and get people to come into my building? I think that's right. And, and if, you, if you bring this conversation a step, a, an org chart step lower than commissioner, uh, I, I think another one of the interesting aspects of this whole thing is that, is that sports has for a long time, the industry of sports has benefited from the fact that it was a cool kind of sexy place to work, right? And, and kids grow up wanting to be athletes. And when, when that dream dies, a lot of them just want to end up working in sports as it is. And it, it, from people I've talked to, and, and, and we touched on this in the story that we did last year, Scott, uh, it, it feels as though that's kind of wearing off. The, the patina is wearing off a little bit on, on the industry. <laughs> that's a Daniel Libet word. Shout it out is, to Daniel. It is. The patina. Um, I like it. And, and, and as a result, yeah, I think you're, you're now confronting sports, I think, is. And, and again, this is not at the commissioner level, but this is at the VP level of teams and things like that, uh, confronting this idea that, that they're not paying commensurate to these other companies we're talking about, right? The, uh, a similarly ranked person at Apple is making way more than a similarly ranked person at an NHL or MLB club. Um, but the, the demand to hire people from those areas is extremely high because again, sports is entertainment and, and, and media is dominating sports and, and new content in a way that well, wasn't even true 15 or 20 years ago. So I, I do think there's, there's another aspect there, which is that the, the, the whole industry has in a lot of ways just benefited from being kind of glitzy and sexy and, and desirable in a way that I think you're, you're starting to see cracks in that model right now. All right. Can we play a fun game just for Please. the heck of it? Yeah. Let's say Adam says, oh, my God, I love Space Mountain. I, <laughs> I love oversized turkey legs. <laughs> Mouse ears. <laughs> I, I love leather NASCAR jackets. I want to go and do Disney. And by the way, you know, I like the distribution and I like you know, the cable part of it. Too. Yeah. It's a little fun at the expense of. I think there's a little sign outside Disney World. That, that has like a Walt Disney thing. Never forget it all started with a, with a mouse. Yeah. I'm not sure anybody really remembers that anymore, but whatever. <laughs> let's never forget it all started with a mouse. Let's say Adam Silver says, you know what? I'm up for a new challenge. You know, I've, I've done all I can at the NBA. I don't think that's true. But anyway, right, so he leaves. I had a very prominent member of the sports community text me this morning saying, one, what are you hearing? And two, who do you think the NBA would turn to? Like who's, who replaces Adam? Kind of the discussion we just had. And I, I, I thought it's, it's pretty simple. I don't think you need search firms. I don't think you need outside here. The NBA has a very deep, talented, respected bench. And the two names that I rattled off immediately, one deputy commissioner, Mark Tatum. Sure. You know, ha has tons of global experience, has been with the league, has all the relationships, widely respected. Great. And then also Amy Brooks. Yep. who, if people don't know Amy, uh, she is the president of what's called Teambo, which is Team and Business Operations. They kind of 
set the agenda for the league. They work with all the teams, the growth strategies internationally, all that. And by the way, a uh, new title, relatively new, I believe, of like she was the league's first chief innovation officer, mm-hmm. which dovetails nicely with what we just said about what these leagues and teams are. Who better than Amy to go to the teams and say, we must innovate or die. This is what I have been focused on. So, right, I mean, those would be the top two. I'm not sure you even need to go outside and, and check. You've got really, really good people inside that I'm sure Adam would point to and say, either one of them would do a great job. Outside, for, for the reasons you mentioned earlier in this podcast, extremely difficult to do. And, and I'm, I'm just thinking off the top of my head here, Roger Goodell, um, I guess tech, he, he, he was in, was he working at the NFL before he was commissioner? He was. He started as an intern. Yeah, He's he been started there forever. As an intern. Um, yep. Rob Manfred obviously came from within. Um, the uh, commissioner before him, Bud Selig, was an owner. Uh, the um, there's another commissioner, Gary well, Bettman. Ga- was, Gar- Gary Bettman was an NBA attorney under yeah. David Stern, and he's yeah. the first NHL commissioner ever, right? So it's not like there was predecessors there. But but in in, in, in thinking about Bud Selig, um, I, I also wonder if there was a vacancy at the NBA, if there might be an owner that people would would turn to and say, yeah, I, I would trust. Ted Leonsis as someone who has a, has an interesting vision and understands not, the NBA. Not, not, if, not if Ted ain't going to sell the Wizards, he ain't. <laughs> of course, right? That, that that changes things a little bit. Bud didn't sell the the Brewers, did he? Was he put in a trust? I think it was put. Thing. I think it was put in a trust. That was the impression. That, that, that that's my impression from from uh, from reading his his biography a couple of years ago. Um, but yeah, I, I do wonder if 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 it has to be someone who's in the league and and if. Um, people that you mentioned or others at the league at the NBA aren't or don't want to, et cetera. Yeah. I wonder if there, there's something in the ownership rank, someone who's again, very familiar with the league, but isn't at the, at the league office that might be an opportunity as well. Yeah, and all right. If I, again, maybe a little value add here, a little fun one here, you know, all the time we say things in the office, we see things that other people write and you and I are like, who doesn't know that? <laughs> like, like that's been out for 20 years. And yet I think you and I are surprised sometimes. Maybe we're too close to it. To find out that people, oh, wow, that's interesting. I'm like, interesting. You didn't know that when it was written a year ago, three years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. How do you not know this? But anyway, little trivia time. All right, so do you know what the uh, the NBA trophy is named after who? Do you know? Uh, I'll put, put you on the, the spot. spot I don't here. worry, but yeah. I can tell you. Um, it's the what trophy? Yeah, I, give, it, give it to me. It's the Larry O'Brien Larry trophy. Larry O'Brien, yeah, yeah. Okay, now th- this is like the fun facts. This is really just so people go, huh, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Larry O'Brien was the first commissioner of the NBA. David replaced uh, Larry. Larry was also the head of the Democratic National Committee. It was his, prior to being commissioner, it was his office in the Watergate Hotel that Mm. was broken into. Yeah. So if people didn't know that the tie, Watergate's tie to (laughs) professional sports, Larry O'Brien, head of the DNC, office broken into then became the commissioner of the NBA. Thank you very much. There we go. You don't get that on every podcast, folks. Uh, it's not so, easy to go from that to <laughs> NHL trade deadline, but we're going to try. Go ahead. What was your well, best trade in the NHL? Who you who do you do look at and say, "Ooh, I'm I'm interested in that." I, one. I mean, the I think both the what the the New York area teams all did right, beefing up the Islanders with with Bo Horvat, the Rangers they, they with, both with Patrick they didn't Kane, up. they both and, up, and and the Devils with uh, with Timo Meyer. Timo- 
Uh, I think it's fascinating. It seems like barring something catastrophic or uh, or insane that the, the Devils and Rangers are going to meet in the in the first round of the playoffs. That that seems like an, an awesome series for obvious reasons, um, both geographically and from a, from a hockey standpoint. I think the thing that that struck out to me the most, and we don't need to get too deep into the X's and O's of the NHL here right now, but th- there was so much buying and selling, obviously, happening at the, at the deadline more so than I think. The, the NHL has seen in a really long time. And I do wonder about the economics of all that, right? That there is a, and, and, and Connor Bedard is in some ways considered that he's going to be the top pick in, in this draft. There's mm-hmm. been a lot of talk about tanking for Connor and all that. Um, there is a transcendental talent that is going to be the first pick available for, for this upcoming draft, but it does feel like almost for the first time relative to other leagues, NHL owners are kind of coming around to this idea that you know, if if we we can be a a semi contender, and it's not worth it to us to stick in this game if it's just going to be a, a first round playoff exit, and and that may be the best way to approach next season or three seasons from now from from a financial standpoint is to is to be a seller in this way. So a, a lot more movement at the deadline than I think the NHL has ever seen, and to me that just shows that 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 maybe ownership is thinking about for whatever reason, thinking about the, the idea of contender versus rebuilder in a different way than they have in the past. Yeah, I, and I also wondered, like, do you look at the big landscape of things because, like, boy, you want to go for it. I get it. Yeah. You want to ramp up. You want to go for it when you can. But when I'm looking at, at one of these all-time teams, uh, like, nobody's talking about the Carolina Hurricanes, even though they're having a great season. And you know why? Because the Boston Bruins are having an even <laughs> yeah. better season. Yep. I mean, as we do this, Hurricanes are forty-one and twelve. That's insane. They just who they destroy last night I was of Tampa. Yeah, Tampa. They just destroyed your your lookalike Steve Stamkos and the Lightning. And meanwhile, I was watching. My kid was on the ice practicing, and all the dads and moms were watching the Rangers and the Bruins, saying, "All right, this is this." I think this was a litmus test. Post trade, you know, Patrick Kane in New York and they're in Boston and Boston won 4 1, couple late goals. They're 49 and 8. Now, keep in mind to, to eliminate the Boston Bruins, who, by the way, are not built around one superstar. So, like, Connor McDavid gets hurt, the Oilers aren't doing anything, right? Do we agree with that? Uh, I agree. Yep. Okay. <laughs> I mean, even. I mean, the Maple Leafs, even this, I mean, they haven't won a series in forever, but even the Maple Leafs, like, all right. Lose Austin Matthews, very difficult, right? The Bruins can withstand a Marchand, a Bergeron. They can lose a top player and still be one of the best teams in the league. But you need to beat them four out of seven. They have lost eight (laughs) out of 57. Like, is this the year you want to be trading assets and loading up to make a run at competing against the Boston Bruins? At least in the East. Good luck, right? And, right? and the funny thing about that is that everyone in the East loaded up. Right? Yeah, everybody, is, everybody, yeah, everybody said yes. I think you could make an argument that seven of the eight best teams in the NHL, the the the, the Avalanche being the one from the West, but that seven of the eight best teams are all not Edmonton. You're not including Edmonton and one of the best teams. I'm not not in the, in the top. Whatever it is, it, it, there right. feels like a massive, massive power imbalance. Okay. Um, and I think you're right when you when you lay things out like that. 
Um, I think that's uh, that's a. Uh, <laughs> I think it looks a, a bit more stark than than it might. I also I don't know if you saw this, but the the Tampa Bay uh, general manager Julian Breezebois. Uh, was asked about a, a deal that they made for someone named Tanner Janot. I'm not going to get into all the specifics. They gave away a lot of picks for a player that a lot of fans thought was not worth all those picks. And he gave a really interesting answer about um, the likelihood of people who are not early first round picks actually panning out. And the uh, and I would encourage people to. I'm, I'm not going to read it off because it's really long. But the the idea between a guaranteed NHL player and whatever the percentages are in the draft of getting someone who could be a really, really good player, but also most likely is never going to see the NHL. I thought it was a really interesting look into the the, the brains of someone who is analyzing not just the value of these picks and, and how good this other player is, but also how good and how old his team is and realizing that in, in three years, which is is roughly when a first round draft pick taken this year is going to matter in the NHL that the rest of the Tampa Bay lightning are not going to be in a position to really benefit from, from that person, even if he is a star. Um, but it was the most coherent and, and cogent breakdown I've, I've seen from a GM really in any sport about here's how we're thinking about this. Here are the percentages that matter to us. And here's yeah. why after all of this, this trade that a lot of fans might not like, here's why we think this is the right thing for our team. Who was it? I believe it was I believe it was Mark Cuban when the Mavericks traded I want to say it was Steve Nash. Okay. I believe it I believe it was Steve Nash because he was obviously a cornerstone of the franchise, very popular player and they traded him away and I think Mark if memory serves and if I'm wrong please everybody light me up on Twitter. <laughs> But if memory, if it's working, if memory serves, Mark wrote like a 3000 word explanation. And I love this at the time. I thought it was probably the best of what Mark Cuban does, where he wanted to be transparent and said, I understand this is an incredibly popular player. So I feel like you guys deserve to understand our thinking. Here was the thought process behind from the senior level ownership and down as to why we just traded Steve Nash. Hmm. And I think it's great. I mean, it's exact. They, I think there should be more a, of this. There yeah. Even if they didn't agree with you, there has to be an appreciation from the fan side of things, a customer side that says, wow, okay, I disagree, but thanks. Yeah. I get it. I get it. Now I see your argument again. We don't have to, dis- we don't have to agree, but it's good business to explain to your customers why you're messing with the product. That's Agreed. a good deal. Agreed. And by the way, I think we also have to include maybe Dallas and maybe Vegas as top teams. You're kind of dissing the West, the Western there. I'm not sure. Vegas, one of the eight best teams in the NHL. 38 Oof. and 19, my friend. Oof. 38 and 19. Yeah, they 82 were like points. 22 and four at one point, I think. Yeah. Uh, still, still. Just, just say Minnesota good. Colorado's below Dallas and Minnesota. Colorado's you said Colorado. Team. I think they're a better team than Dallas. They're also, they've also have yeah. some injuries, I understand, yeah. you know, getting getting their best players back. But yeah, uh, LA Kings, by the way, I didn't realize. 36 and 20. New Phoenix Copley was getting a lot good. of... Yeah, sneaky yeah, team sneaky, right there. Very good. Yeah, though. I didn't realize. I mean, the Kraken have all year been like, I kept waiting for them to just fall apart. No, they're doing pretty well, yeah. too. They're ahead of Edmonton. But still, I wouldn't want to play... I would not want to play McDavid and Dreisaitl exactly. in, in a playoff series. Uh, yeah, anyway, I agree with that. what else were we... Oh, oh wait, tell me about your... Um, your uh, all-time scoring leader in the uh, in the NCAA basketball. That I love that story. The minute you told me, and I did not know it, the minute you told me, I'm like, I love this story. Write it up because people will not know, and I think it's cool as hell. Yeah, it takes a little bit of a setup, but the uh, the the star senior guard for the Detroit Mercy Titans 
not exactly Duke or Carolina. A very middling college basketball team has spent this entire year chasing Pistol Pete Maravich's all-time NCAA Division I scoring record. It is a record that people assumed would never, ever be broken. Uh, Antoine Davis is the kid's name. He benefited from the fact that everybody got an extra season of eligibility in COVID. So he was able to play essentially five full seasons. He was absolutely dominant from a scoring perspective for all five of those seasons uh, and entered uh, his team's conference tournament game. So potentially the last game of the year for the team needing 26 points to pass Pistol Pete Maravich. He took, I think, 16 three-pointers, including one at the buzzer that rimmed out and ended four points shy of breaking the record. So it seemed as though after all this, Antoine Davis was going to end his collegiate career four points shy of breaking this this unbreakable record, Uh, except for the fact that Detroit Mercy has one potential last option. The the team is not good (laughs) enough to be invited to a a tournament like the NIT. I love this. But there is a tournament called the CBI. It's another one of these postseason invitational tournaments. Had you heard of the CBI before this? I I had heard of it, yes. but um, I did not. I could not have told you probably much anything else about it. Um, But it's an invitational tournament, and, and the way that they structure their their thing right now, it, it's all held in Florida and teams have to pay $27,500 to participate in the event. Uh, so putting the CBI together every year is, is partially a mix of inviting teams, seeing who's willing to pay that money, which is not a ton of money in the grand scheme of things, to be clear, but there's also travel costs and all that. And also trying to figure out what's a compelling group of teams to get here. And I think a, a bunch of people, myself included, immediately thought that Detroit Mercy is, is is exactly the team that the CBI should want. And I would imagine Detroit Mercy also would probably want to play in it. So we're going to find out in a week or so once the lineup is set. But Detroit Mercy has an opportunity to pay uh, a five-figure sum of some sort for travel and also entrance fee, bring the team down to, to Florida and, and get Antoine Davis at least one more game, in which case he is almost certainly going to break the record. I think it is a very fun little business and marketing story, right? Because yeah, I would it's, argue... Yeah, it's you, you, from, from the school's perspective, you can't, for 27.5, I don't care what you do, unless you figure out some way to get something to go crazy viral, I don't know what it would be. How are you going to get better pub long long term for your school than having the all-time scoring lead? I, I, agreed. And and then the, 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 the pushback that they're getting, and I find this actually interesting, I want to get your thoughts on it, is that there's a bunch of people out there who feel like this is just the the wrong way to 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 grab a what some people feel as like a, a essential central sacrosanct bedrock NCAA uh, record, right? That that if if the record book has to be not only did Antoine get an extra full year of playing uh, because of COVID, he got the benefit of the three point line, which Pistol Pete Maravich didn't have. He had the benefit of the shot clock, which Pistol Pete Maravich didn't have. But his team also had to pay to get him one extra game to do it, that that is not the way that a record should be broken. And these are all the things that that the Detroit Mercy is going to have to figure out, right? Do, do the players want to play? It seems like they do. I would imagine if you're this guy's teammate, you, you would love the idea of him getting getting this record. But it's also a matter of the, the kind of the public perception of doing it. I think all of this actually folds into what is a, a really fascinating story my guess, Scott, is that when the CBI unveils its uh, its 16 teams, Detroit Mercy is going to be one of those teams. And I would expect there's going to be a decent amount of national media attention uh, heading into that game. And then when Antoine Davis does score that fourth point, probably a minute and a half into the game, uh, I think there's going to be kind of a, a new flurry of, of interest around the story as well. Uh, you know about the boxing one. How about the opposing coach who feels the same way as those curmudgeons does or do? 
and comes out with like four guys on him <laughs> and says, you ain't scoring a point tonight, buddy. We may lose by 75, but you ain't getting that record. In, in the in in the universe where Detroit Mercy pays to go down there and Antoine goes one of 28 <laughs> yes. from the field and ends up with two points. Um that's one of the funniest, <laughs> one of the funnier sports that, stories. I that's can think the of outcome of, of nobody the has considered. He plays and does not <laughs> score four points. Twists and, his ankle really badly on the second play, and yes. they, they bring him out to shoot technical free throws occasionally. We wish. No, we don't have enough time for this one, so we'll discuss it again because it's a big enough story. Our friend Alex Sherman at CNBC uh, talked about ESPN sort of being a, a friendly to wall. Like, really, uh, how can we help people find all sorts of different sporting events that are on in this fractured world of streaming and whatever. Like, can I go to one platform? And I joked, I was like ESPN buzzer, right? But can yeah, I go to can joke. I go to one platform, ESPN, be all things for all sports fans, and be like, all right, I don't mind redirecting you outward to a particular event. We can discuss this more on, on the next show. Uh, but it's just an interesting concept that I, mean, we, I think we've seen before, but the fact that it's ESPN being so central to sports and sports fans makes sense to me. And it comes at the at the at the at the right time for all of the yeah. discussion that we've talked about around the changing local regional media rights. Um, and yeah, we'll get into this at a, at a later show. But I do think the 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 fan experience around where to get games, how many platforms you have, what they cost, uh, is going to become an increasingly frustrating part uh, of this equation for teams and leagues. Uh, and I think the what 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 Alex wrote about ESPN, I think, is really interesting, and, and we'll unpack it at a later date. I think what we should do here is like, I think cable companies should get together and aggregate different types of programming into sort of what should, what would we call that? What, what are we doing to these things? I mean, it's almost like a bundle. We're bundling things, right? I don't know. Maybe that and then have a, a guide where you can see everything. It could be a guide where, yeah, yeah. I can find it and maybe by do it by sport. I don't, I don't know. Somebody should try that. He is Edmund Novi Williams on the Twitter <laughs> Novi underscore Williams. I am Scott Soshnick on the Twitter at Soshnick. Our producer is. Matt Whitehurst. Thank you very much, Matt, our digital media editor, Cora Veltman. She loves it when I remind you that the show can be found at Sportacast, which is the hub of the Sportico Media Network. <laughs>